will speak with us, to us, from his word, and that indeed we might encourage one another in this pilgrimage. As we near home, do you ever think about that? You know, that every day we are nearer home than we were yesterday. So I hope as we prepare to go home, when he asks us or when he calls us or he bids us to go home, we do everything possible to walk well with him. And uh, let's come to him in prayer and ask him to bless our time together. Dear God, who lives and reigns, and rules over all. A God who is a Lord of justice and wrath and anger and fury, who punishes sin, who subdues his enemies, but also a God of mercy and grace, who is full of love and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in grace. A God who disciplines us and loves us, those whom is called his own. O oh God, we come to you this morning and we ask that indeed may your truths be entrenched in our hearts, may they be written in our hearts of flesh, so that we may be caused to walk after ways and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. The beauty of staying in a text or the beauty of preaching or teaching through books of scripture is when you forget something, you can go back always and uh, say it again. You know, so last Sunday, for some reason, we were to read Revelation 21. We didn't read it, so I may invite us before we go to Esther 5 to turn with me to Revelation 21. As we look at our... As you are winding up on courage... Last Sunday, there is something I wanted to say out of Revelation 21, which I did not, and so I asked us to look at it. Revelation 21. Some great words of promise and hope and encouragement that John the Revelator speaks to us of. From 1 to 8 he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw the holy city, uh, verses 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Remember the time when the children of Israel are crying and mourning and are fasting in Esther. Nor any more, for the former things have passed away. And he is seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water from from the spring of the water of life without payment now listen to verse 7 very carefully he says the one who conquers the one who makes it to the hand the one who perseveres the one who god preserves the believers you and i whom god will keep to the very end of our faith he tells us this the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his god and he will be my son and then verse 8 is very interesting as i was looking at this verse he says the people who are not going to conquer he's saying the those who are not going to inherit this being called the son of god or the children of god and god being called their god both whom will not be saved eternally finally and fully and listen to the person he starts with but as for the cowardly and you remember chapter 4 we were talking about what courage we were talking about endurance conviction to carry out that task that god has given us so the cowards those who act not in courage the faithless the detestable the murderers the sexually immoral the sorcerers the idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death so i just wanted us to see how courage is serious even as we talk about courage as we talk about conviction as we talk about acting despite our fears in lieu of the task that god has called us or has asked us to do we must be not cowards so let's go to chapter 5 of esther that i want us to focus on today and back on it we've looked at courage we finished with esther saying if i perish i perish you know she's put her neck on the line for her people and so verses chapter 5 starts on the third day remember they said let's fast for 3 days okay as an act of penitence as an act of going before the lord and we read joel 2 12 to 14 last time the way we got those words where people mourned fasted and prayed so that god may hear them in their cry so that they may return indeed to the lord so on the third day esther now puts away her mourning clothes and she puts on a royal robe and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne let's let's remember that idea of a throne esther is in a throne room inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace and when the king saw the queen esther standing in the court she won favor in his sight and he held out to esther the golden scepter that when it was in his hand when esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her what is it queen esther what is your request it shall be given to you and we've seen from chapter 1 this is a very rash king this is a king who has been acting despite of thinking you know he makes promises and he acts so he says i'll give you half of my kingdom even if that is what you've come to inquire of me and esther says and we will see as we move on to chapter 6 and 7 hopefully the tact of this woman she says to the king if it pleases the king let the king and haman come today to a feast you know he keeps him guessing that i've prepared for the king when the king said bring haman quickly so that we may do as esther asked so that the king 
and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, a second time now, what is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered this way, this is my request and my wish. And you will think she will say what she needs to say, but she's dilly-dallying, bidding her time. She says, if I found favor in the sight of the king, which she has found, remember she's just been spared of her life, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, and when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. If you remember the background of the story, Haman, you were introduced in chapter 3 as the Adagite from the tribe of King Hagag, whom Saul had spared, if you remember, or whom Saul had cut into pieces, whom now Samuel went and cut into pieces. So this is an old, you know, animosity that is coming to play again. And just instead of dealing with this, remember this is what has, you know, brought about the impending genocide. Haman has gotten the king to a place where the king has ordered a decree that all the Jews in Persia are to be killed on the 13th month, on the 13th day of the 12th month. So we see in verses 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought forth his friends. And now we are introduced into another character, the wife of Haman. Her name is Zeresh. And so Haman recounts all his splendor in a very prideful, boastful way. The splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which the king had honored him. Remember that word honor, because they are going to meet it again in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we'll talk about the man whom the king honors. And we're going to see a reversal. Esther has been shocking us, where what we expect is not happening. Like in Esther 5, you would expect maybe the king has not seen Esther for a month. You would expect him to act, you know, in the way you expect of death. But you're going to see that instead of death, you're going to see life. Instead of condemnation, you're going to see hope. Instead of fear, you're going to see hope coming out of this. So the one whom the king honors, chapter 6, is not going to be Haman. The one whom the king is going to honor is a man forgotten, a man who had saved the king's life in chapter 2, Mordecai. And now he has advanced him above all officials and the servants of the king. Verses 12, Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me with the king to the feast she had prepared, and tomorrow I'm also invited together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So as long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, is very, very clear. You know, the way sometimes we stereotype people. Uyum Jaluo, Uyum Kisi. You know, so Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the gate. Remember one of the things we've been talking about in this book is this tribal prejudices, you know, racial discrimination, how we view people, how 
who have been tribal, our very own selves. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, now look at the advice they give this man. Let a gallow, which is 50 cubits, and 50 cubits, if you translate it into uh, a measurement that you and I can understand is 75 feet. This is about 10 feet. So think about how high this is. This roof is about 10 feet. So 75 is about 7.5 times. So that is a very big gallow that all of Pasha can see. You know, this is a man who is showy and he wants to hang Mordecai there. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai. You remember Mordecai? I mean, Haman, you have the ear of the king. You're number two, as it were. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And it says, sadly, this idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. We've been seeing the providence of God. We've been seeing God working. And look at how verses, chapter 6 begins, just to show you that this hidden God, that this sometimes silent God is at work. Then it says, on that night, this fateful night, the king could not sleep. So that is not just a line in this story. It is a line pointing us to something. Because this is going to make the king, suffering from insomnia, that night, bring the books and say, there's a man whom I've not rewarded for a kind deed way back there. And you're going to see how that is going to reverse the order of things. So one of the ways you can look at the book of Esther, it is a book of reversals. It's a book where God turns things and changes things. So chapter 5, we are going to see how God has this great sense of humor. How God is going to come up with his wit. He can twist fate when there are threatening circumstances against his children he can use them for their benefit and their good. As you said earlier, the plot is set for a genocide. But Esther has been asked by Mordecai and her people to act or to rise in courage. And she has now fully identified with her people. She is now showing herself as a covenant child of God. She has moved out of the passion shadows or cultures. And remember, as we look at this story, the king has not seen her for a month. The king has signed her death warrant. Somebody who she doesn't know she is a Jew. Remember, the king does not know this. Mordecai had told her earlier, do not say you are a Jew. That is a tight, leaded secret up to this point. And as we arrive at Esther 5, I want us to freeze Esther 5, 1 to 3. Do not go beyond Esther 5, 1 to 3. We want to stay into the courtroom of this king at Azaxas, and I want us to see what do we learn in this courtroom. What do we learn in this throne room where a king is confronted by his queen? And I pray, and as I've prayed over and over again, as we do such stories, this is not just a Cinderella story. I pray that God would awaken fresh insights or truths in this story. I pray Psalms 119.18, that the Lord would open your eyes, will open my eyes, that you may see the wonderful things written in his law, so that you may know him and obey him. 
This is not just a Cinderella story that a lot of us are used to. It is not just a story of a girl who becomes a queen, but it is a story loaded with wonderful truths. So that is what I want us to go on with. As Esther walks in, in Esther 5.1, perhaps the king has a smile now spread across his face. And as he shifts and turns in his majestic tear and says, Oh, Esther, baby, come on. I've not seen you in a month. I've missed you. Perhaps she said those words, What can I do for you? And before he says another word, he remembers, Oh, she's come and announced, so I must hold out my golden scepter. Because if I don't, that is a death sentence unto the queen. So I want us to ask ourselves, what is happening in this story? As I said, do not go beyond verses 3. We will look at verses 1, 2, and 3. If, if you've watched old movies, you know, we call them epics, set in those medieval times, where you find maybe people are fighting with swords or machetes or spears, and they're in a big arena, they're a big stadium, and the crowd is there, the king, the emperor is there, and they're, you know, being entertained by these acts of blood, you know. And maybe one is subdued and the person is about to be killed. What happened was it is the king who decided whether the person was killed or not. So the king and the crowd had the power to decide that. So as the crowd is now shouting either leave, 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 if, for example, this person is defeated and won the favor of the crowd, or the crowd will, uh, will shout, die, 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 depending on the favor the person who's been subdued had. So the king will either do this, or the emperor, to say that that person is spared, he or she will live, he normally, or the king will do this and the person will be killed. That is what I want us to have as a background. The king has a decision. He can decide whether this person lives or dies. Esther has appeared in her splendor before the king. For some reason, physically, it is the king who holds life and death in his hands. But you and I know ultimately it is God who decides who lives or die. Not, O oh king, it is not in your hands. Proverbs 16 will tell us that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, and it's like a river that the king directs his course. So, O king Atazaxos, if you think you're the one who is going to decide whether Esther lives or not, in the interim you can, you are dead wrong. The power you have is delegated power. At least out of sight, out of mind, has not worked against Esther. Because our scriptures will tell us that Esther found favor before the king. And the king held out his golden scepter and Esther touched it. So the first lesson I want us to learn out of Esther 5, a lesson on reversal, is instead of death, we see life. Instead of death, we see life. Instead of condemnation, we see mercy. Instead of anxiety and uncertainty, we see hope. Instead of rejection, we see acceptance. 
in this stunning scene of Esther 5, 1 to 3. One of the things that I've said runs through the course of this book is a God who is at work. A God who is hidden but is acting. The racing heart of Esther is now calmed. She has sighed to a relief. Remember on the background there are people who are crying and fasting with her. And the Lord has heard their prayers. The Lord who loves to hear the prayers of their people, of his people who cry night and day for him. We must keep remembering that one lesson in this book. From the time of the dispersion, remember these Jews who were in exile. The Jews who were who still in Persia. To Esther being an orphan, to finding themselves in Persia, to being howled into the king's harem, to being part of a beauty pageant, to finding favor with the king's caregivers, to being made a queen, to now on the throes of a planned genocide. In acting in courage, you must appreciate the hidden work of God in this story. Just like you and I, in our circumstances, we must see that. A lot of us think that because we are not seeing God work, he must have forgotten us. Because I'm not seeing the results of God in my life, he is not acting on my behalf. Because I'm not seeing the answers to my prayer as I want him to answer them, he is not listening. Because there is not a laid out plan how things are going to be, then surely there must not be a plan. Don't we think about that or in that manner a lot of times? And when we do that, we end up acting like Job. In Job 23, 8 and 9. Job in the midst of his untold suffering, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Job 23, 8. I go backward, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. We, like Job, think he has abandoned us. We say to ourselves, our cause, our lives are too small. God must be dealing with bigger problems elsewhere. Yet we must appreciate as we see in this story that God who is hidden, the Lord is sometimes silent, he is at work. We must appreciate that the work of God is usually not fully revealed or hidden from our perception, but he is at work. The Shorter Catechism for children, there's a question there that is asked. The children ask, can you see God? And the, the answer is very simple that you can tell a Sunday school or a child. You tell them, no, but he can see us. We can't see God, but he can see us. Let's look at Job 23 that I've just quoted a bit. So that we see the end of the verse. I've quoted verses 8 and 9 of Job 23. Turn with me to Job 23, 8 and 9. And I want us to read it again. This God who is hidden, this God who is sometimes silent, but is working mysteriously and massively. He is changing the course of history on our behalf. 
Job will say again, verses 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand when he is walking, look at those words, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Look at verses 10, introduced by a word of negation. Meaning what Job has been saying in verses 8 and 9 is not true. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So that question of a God whom we think is not absent, or a God whom we think is not present, is answered. He is there. He is working. The work of God may not be visible to our eyes, but is that not how the Christian life is to be? Because our lives are a matter of faith, not sight. Second Corinthians 5, 7. Like in Esther's case, remember the faith she had in the sovereign God of Israel is what has inspired courage so that this God is acting in the shadows, in the background, orchestrating all the good and bad that has happened to her up to this point from finding favor in the king's custodians, from becoming a, a, a queen, the good, and also the bad. Remember, this was a kidnapping, sexual abuse, possibly, by the king. All this good and bad happening to her, God is orchestrating a salvation of her people. So she acts in faith. Habakkuk will remind you and I presently as we wonder if God is at work. Habakkuk says he is about to do something in your days that you will not believe even if you are told you will be amazed at what I do. So when we find ourselves in such life situations, when we wonder if God is at work in our lives like Esther, like the children of Israel, one of the things we do as we say is, we pray, we cry to him, we mourn, we fast if possible so that he may act on our behalves. Why? Because God loves our cries and our prayers and our repenting and relents his or the disaster about to happen to us. Like we learned in Jonah 2, something of prayer. This is what we learned and we learn here. People who believe in the sovereignty of God are not passive, but they act in bold confidence in prayer. Such people who believe in the God who ordained all things do this, that God has both ordained prayer as a means and an end, and by which he brings about his acts, his merciful acts of salvation towards us in times of need. It reminds me of the great, of the missionary called William Carey to the heathen Indians, and his great statement is said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Is that not what is happening in this story? So Esther, alongside her people, have been crying to God for three days. And now they expect him to act, and he does act in their favor. It reminds us of Hosea 6.2. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up, and his answers why that we may live before him. Hosea 
6, 2. So the first lesson of Esther 5 is 1. The reversal is life, not death. And I don't think it is a stretch to think of Christ in this light. Because Romans 4.25, as we think of this life theme, as we think about the heroic act of Esther in the throne room of King Artaxerxes, it pales, it cannot be compared to the Christ who was delivered on the third day and raised up, Romans 4.25, for our justification. Esther is a shadow of the one who was to come many, 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 many years after her, who will also act on behalf, not of just ethnic Israel, but the entire world. Who was not guilty, Christ, but was made an object of divine fury. You see, Esther wins favor and is spared unjust death. Yet Christ guiltless, yet was still condemned, cast and killed on a cross for the justification of money. Esther lived so that her people may live physically, temporary on this earth, yet Christ died so that his people might live spiritually and forever. First Peter 3.18 speaks of a good man being put to death for an unjust people, so that they may be brought back to God. We see Esther risked much, but Christ gave his all. Philippians 2. Is that not the best news coming out of this story this morning? I want us to lift our eyes from just the throne room of King Artaxerxes and catapult ourselves to the throne room of God Back to the cross, we see the Son of God agonizing, anguishing, dying for the sins of the world, yours and mine. We were guilty before God, yet Christ went before the throne of God into the Holy of Holies and brought us back. He purchased our ransom with his precious blood so that we might live, not killed, because we justly deserve the death of God because of our sins. Esther was spared. Christ was not. Christ bore the full wrath of God for your sins and mine at Calvary so that now the penalty due to sin has been paid fully by his once for all act of sacrifice so that you and I can now trust in him sufficiently as a savior. Therefore, what are you to do? What am I to do? As we reckon with this dying and resurrected Savior, as the jailer before Paul in Acts 16.30, repent and believe the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. If you're here and you're not a believer. So why die, O sinner? Why die, O sinner, when the scriptures have sufficient answered that he died so that you might live? And for those of us whom he has saved and now we live, it is not because of our own merit, but we know it is by faith, trusting in this Christ, who I have saved once for all, paid 
for all our sins, past, present, and future. And so, even for believers here, we are not to live in fear or cowardice. But in our times of peril, in our times when life is hard and threatening us over, we can come before the presence of our King. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 that we read earlier. We can approach the throne room of God and we are sure what we will get there. We don't approach with uncertainty. We don't approach with wishy-washiness. We know that we have a confidence in Christ who has brought us before God so now we live. And so enjoy these words of Romans 8, 1 to 6. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, what the law was weakened by the flesh could not do. What did God do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is, listen to the word, death. But to set your mind on the things of the spirit is life and peace. What contrasting opposites. We have now no fear to come before him. He who sits on the throne room of grace has said Hebrews 4.16 so that we may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And so I end with this, dear brethren, that God is for us. Romans 8.32 The argument we looked at last Sunday that if he's done this great thing of giving his very own son Will you not do a lesser thing of working everything else good for us? So Christ was condemned fully. He died our death so that now we might live. So this morning, if you're desperate, if you're hungry, if you're cornered, if you're in peril, if they sword against you, if there is everything that life is throwing against you, if you are at a point of no return, remember this. We have Christ, our great high priest, who has brought us before the throne room of God and we can boldly, confidently come to this God in prayer and receive mercy and grace for our time of need. Shall we pray? God, will you do a work that only you can do in the lives of your people? In Jesus' name we pray.